Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, let, let's, let's talk some more about uh, from this angle, because sometimes the impression is left, well, the poor can be cared for, and that's something that the marketplace should do, or that's something the state should do. Uh, how does a mi- materialistic mindset get in the way of providing good care by suggesting that the, that the help isn't really the business of the church? Right. Uh, there's a tendency on one side to uh, assume that the state should take the lead in caring for the poor, and then there's a tendency on the other side to think that if we just get the economic uh, policy right, uh, market activity will automatically create flourishing for everyone. Uh, but neither of those is really adequate, and mm-hmm. both proceed from a, a materialistic assumption that if you just get the material conditions right, the machine will work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's mechanistic thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the essentially the problem is that uh, he, these are human problems, and human beings are not material uh, creatures only. Mm-hmm. They're they're uh, spiritual creatures as well as material creatures. And making things more complicated, their spiritual and material realities are integrated, mm-hmm. uh, so that you can't effectively deal with one without effectively dealing with the other. And we have the problem on both sides. Uh, there are people who want to deal with the spirit and not the material things, and that doesn't work. And then there are people who want to deal with material things and not spiritual things, and that doesn't work either. Uh, I think it is imperative that the church take the lead in caring for the poor. Uh, and some of my friends uh, will say, well, uh, today the state takes the lead in caring for the poor, and the church can't do it until the state gets out of the way. Hmm. I, I say poppycock to that. Uh-huh. And I, that's not just my personal opinion. Uh, if you look at the Mormon community, Mm -hmm. they do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are virtually no Mormons on welfare anywhere in America, and it's not because there are no Mormons in economic distress. Mm -hmm. It's because their their religious community has an enormous nationwide and even international system that is run by them, run by their religious Mm -hmm. community, and it delivers huge amounts of material aid to people. You know, canned food and clothing Mm -hmm. and all that is moving through warehouses. They have their own warehouses. That's Mm -hmm. how much stuff they're moving. But it's not done exclusively through material uh, uh, aid. There's relationship building, there's healing, uh, they're they're addressing behaviors. uh, And they've been at this for a while, and they've shown that it can be done. Uh, So we now, when I tell people that story, Uh I will then often uh, uh, conclude with the following question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the biblical model. Yes, <laughs> yeah. the the religious, the faith community is supposed to be doing this. Yes, why are the Mormons doing it, but the evangelical church is not? Mm-hmm. Somebody explain this to me because it doesn't look right to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we should be, I think we should be deeply convicted about that. But uh, thankfully, I think we are becoming convicted about it, and I think good things are starting to happen. So, uh, so your your idea here is that really you need all the various levels of society contributing to the solution of this, that, that there's, a, there's a place for business, there's a place for the state, there's a place for the church. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I would like to see the church taking the lead, mm-hmm. in, particularly in dealing with poverty. Uh, but the state has a role to play in a number of dimensions. The, the, the most essential role of the state is to enforce the rules of fair play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and I don't want to limit the, the, the role of the state to 
that, but that's the central mm-hmm. job of the state. And again, like I mentioned, Hernando de Soto has gone around the world, or his, he and his graduate students have all gone around the world uh, and found that uh, uh, this is something states just don't do mm-hmm. in many, many places around. There's a new book called The Locust Effect, which is all about this, hmm. uh, uh, written by the head of the International Justice Mich- uh, Mission. Uh, and it's all about how in large parts of the world, the poor and the marginalized are not protected by the laws, and mm. they are brutally victimized mm. uh, by powerful people. And nobody is going to bring a charge against anybody for stealing, uh, violently attacking or, or, or killing uh, people from the poor and marginalized populations. Uh, so doing a good job of enforcing the rules of fair play actually contributes a lot. Uh, and that's not the only thing the state can do, but that's a, that's a, that's a 101 you know, mm-hmm. starter level. Uh, and then uh, market activity, again, I think we don't need to draw hard and fast boundaries here. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, a lot of places where you can't really draw a line between what is Christian activity and what is market activity because mm-hmm. Christians are active in the marketplace. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, businesses. We we want business creation. Uh, ultimately, uh, the the long term solution uh, to poverty uh, is to has to involve getting individuals and families and communities out of poverty where the church will no longer need to mm-hmm. tr- to to be focused on them uh, and that's going to involve the the growth of business but the market will not automatically bring that to the neighborhoods that are in the most need yeah particularly the more materialistically they're oriented than the less the less value they bring to the, to this kind of service which gets actually to the next question i had in it that the chapter raises and that is obviously uh, a materialistic focus, and particularly greed, get, can get in the way here uh, and impact these goals. What are we What are we seeing that shows that? And then, uh, and then, how do we how do we address that problem? Yeah, we have a growing problem here, uh, and it's a long term impact of the separation between uh, the the theological world and the economic world. That this the, the materialistic presuppositions in the economic world uh, are becoming more and more out of control, and it leads to material materialistic and selfish uh, behavior. Uh, David Miller, who is at uh, the Avodah Institute at Princeton, which is a faith and work uh, center, he travels really around the world speaking to business people at every level, including the largest national uh, and international companies. Uh, And he says that everywhere he goes, he will ask the question, uh, if you have a problem in your marriage, Mm -hmm. would you feel comfortable talking to a pastor about it? He says, large numbers of hands go up. If you have a problem raising, if your child, if your teenage child had an addiction, would you feel comfortable talking to a pastor about it? Large numbers of hands go up. So there's not a hostility to pastors. But then he'll ask, if you had an ethical dilemma in your work, would you feel comfortable talking to a pastor about it? He says, not only do they not, any of them raise their hands, they laugh. Hmm. They laugh. Mm -hmm. And we wonder why we have the problems we do. Yeah. Right? Uh, And uh, again, this comes back to the subject we began with, that there's this divide. And what's happening is uh, there's no... Uh, there's no counter narrative to the narrative that the the purpose of business is to make money. 
Uh, and so the, the narrative that predominates in the economic world, I mean, this is orthodoxy mm-hmm. in, in, business, in many business schools, is that a business exists to make money. There's no other narrative in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, uh, uh, that's, going to, that's going to be the narrative that guides behavior. Uh, and I think, uh, unfortunately, we have tried to fight this narrative with a, another narrative that is essentially negative about business activity, mm-hmm. uh, that fails to acknowledge the goodness of economic and business activity in God's plan for the world. I think we, we don't fight a, a, a bad narrative that's pro-business with a bad narrative that's anti-business, but rather with a narrative that begins with God's intention for business and, has, and begins with hope mm-hmm. uh, and talks about the potential of business. Uh, uh, to, to be a force for good in the world, uh, and not just when it's taken over by the church, right, <laughs> and the religious professionals are put in charge, right. uh, but that business professionals have a role to play in God's plan uh, to do good things for the world by providing good products and services that people need that create value and make the world a better place. That, that I think, is the answer to greed and materialism. So, so the definition of success isn't how many zeros I have in the CEO uh, salary. The definition of success is, is there a good or a service that's being provided that helps people to live better, function better, that kind of thing. It ministers to them, if I can use a, a normally a, a sacred term. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the word minister means serve, right? right. A minister is a, right. is a servant. Uh, and in fact, the the purpose of business is not to make money, but to serve customers, mm-hmm. to provide goods and services to customers that are good, mm-hmm. that, that serve authentic human needs and make the world a better place. Uh, and I think uh, business needs profit. And there's, if the business is doing honest business that does provide a good product or service, then profit is good. Mm-hmm. There, and and that's I'll 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 go to the mat for that's biblical. You mm-hmm. can you find that fairly easily. That as long as the activity that produces the profit is good, profit is a good thing. Uh, but that is not the purpose of the business. A very common metaphor that's used among Christian business people who are wrestling with this, they will say uh, the body needs blood, but the purpose of the body is not to circulate blood. Mm-hmm. Or another way they'll put it is you need to breathe, mm-hmm. but you don't exist for the purpose of breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and similarly, just as the body needs blood and air, or it's going to die, mm-hmm. the business needs profit or it's going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's absolutely legitimate to be concerned about keeping your business profitable as long as you're doing it in a way that serves people. So, so a more effective response to uh, greed and materialism is not, I think you say this in the piece, abstinence or asceticism, but service and stewardship. In other words, it's, the, the error can be, well, we'll just, we'll just pull all the resources out and not be concerned about how the resources are used. That's what you mean by abstinence and asceticism. And, and rather, no, let's, let's think about how what we do in our service um, enhances our ability to continue to serve and to continue to to be good stewards. Yes, I think uh, while I appreciate people's concern about greed and materialism, Mm -hmm. and I affirm it you know, strongly. Very often, our concern about greed and materialism is couched in a an anti-work, anti-economic, anti-business narrative that ultimately can be very destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that because it reinforces 
the the materialistic pro business narrative. Uh, if we are out there telling a story that business is bad because all it cares about is profit, mm-hmm. if we repeat that over and over, business is about profit. That's why it's bad. Business is about profit. That's why it's bad. We are training people in business to think of their business that way, mm-hmm. uh, and and ultimately that reinforces the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to instead help people to come to discover business activity, whether that's how you spend your own money in your checkbook, mm-hmm. or what a business does, or what a bank does, or what an invest you know what what investors do, uh, what Wall Street does. I mean, Wall Street has this problem in spades, but the answer is not to just go on a jihad against Wall Street and say, uh, you know, financial instruments are intrinsically evil. Mm-hmm. Because if you teach people that, they will act accordingly. Yeah. Uh, you know, we need to we need to help people discover God can actually use financial instruments to do enormous, mighty works for the good of all, mm-hmm. uh, to serve the common good. Those, you know, me, most of those. Yes, there are some financial instruments that were invented for the purpose of trickery, but yeah. but most financial instruments exist uh, in a form that that can be and and often is uh, used to facilitate uh, business activity that serves you know the, serves our needs. You know, where do these microphones come from? Where did this table come from? Where did that screen came from? Came from businesses, and businesses need investment to operate. And where's that investment coming from? You know, it's coming from bankers and Wall Street types. Uh, and if they do their work with an eye toward promoting good business and good uh, good activity, mm-hmm. uh, then they're part of God's economy as well. So, uh, so in thinking about this, uh, and we're almost wrapping up here. Um, what goals should businesses have? Uh, what when you think about? I mean, we've already said numerous times, well, the goal that they shouldn't have is merely to make money, that, that, that there's something more going on here. It's more than, more than a paycheck, to use our, 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 uh, our call line here for, for the conferencing that we're going to be doing on this topic. What, what should be businesses have? What kind of goals should they have? I think, the, to my mind, the paramount goal is to provide goods and services that authentically serve human needs. Uh, now we can get into well, what is a what is an authentic human need, and what what is not really, uh, and and that gets into the weeds very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to avoid that, just provide goods and services that th- serve authentic human needs and make the world a better place is the paramount goal. Subordinate goals would include staying profitable, mm-hmm. doing business in an, in a way that has integrity, mm-hmm. uh, helping the people in the business grow in their ability uh, to do good work and in their relational So the owners. ministry doesn't come just through the service that's provided. The ministry also comes in how those who are employed by the company actually um, conduct their jobs and the personal development that they have in doing their job. Oh, absolutely. A business is a culture. Uh, and and uh, that that reality helps us, I think, to see the spiritual nature of business, that a business is a human community. Mm-hmm. It is a group of people who are in relationship with one another and are doing something that is actually f- personal and intimate to, to mm-hmm. work to work goes right to the heart of your understanding of who you are and, mm-hmm. and what kind of creature you are mm-hmm. uh, and and then if th- there are some businesses that set other goals as well there are businesses that exist uh, for uh, to you know for going above and beyond ordinary purposes uh, you know some businesses intentionally locate in an impoverished neighborhood because in addition to providing a good or service they want to employ people who are marginal uh, and where people do that I think we should applaud it uh, I think 
think th that should not detract from the good of ordinary businesses that don't have that kind of above and beyond goal. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and part of the uh, challenge that we have to navigate is to honor what is done in just uh, ordinary business. You know, when you showing up at work to make widgets mm -hmm. is good and glorifies God. And to honor that uh, without then taking away from people who are doing something uh, that 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 goes above and beyond the ordinary. Uh, and, and that's one of the tensions that uh, the faith and work movement often has to wrestle with because there are people who are in the faith and work movement because they're very enthusiastic about those special businesses. And there are other people who are in the faith and work movement because they're enthusiastic about helping the people who make widgets see how they're glorifying God. Uh, and navigating that tension is, is, is a challenge in the faith and work movement too. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Now, this section ends with the discussion of what's called the stewardship mindset, which is also mentioned earlier in the document. We've talked a little bit about this, but I have a quote here that I want to read, and I'll just let you comment on it when I'm done. Uh, it, it talks about what the stewardship mindship, uh, mindset provides for people in this as they think about their work and their labor. A stewardship mindset, this is a mindset that says, uh, I've been given an assignment to help m manage m my part of the world that God has given me well, if I can put it in kind of lay terms, uh, provides a sound basis for ethical guidance to individuals and institutions responsible for managing and directing wealth. That's what's, what's happening. Resources are being uh, moved around and provided in such a way that people are, are engaged in the economy and are ministered to by the service, goods and services provided. Spirit, scripture, rather, warns against the equal and opposite sins of squandering wealth, spending it in selfish and transitory ways. and. Uh, interestingly, uh, the the example that's brought up here in the appeal to Luke 15, 11 to 32, a passage I know a little bit about, uh, is um, is the picture of the prodigal who goes away and has had been given this gift of the inheritance from his father and he squanders it all so he ends up with nothing. Or hoarding wealth, that is, removing it from its use entirely. In the example here, yet another Lucan passage, Luke 12, 13 to 21, which is the rich fool who when he gets this uh, – cash of wealth that comes to him uh, seemingly fortuitously, uh, he decides, well, I'm not going to use it in any beneficial way. I'm going to keep it for myself. And, uh, and God addresses that attitude as basically fool who will require your soul of you. By contrast, Scripture commends caring for the needs of our own households and other close relations, 1 Timothy 5.8. And after that, generous giving for relief for others' needs, uh, James 
2, 15 to 17. In fact, another passage jumps into my mind, the James 1 passage at the end of the chapter 26 and 27, where true religion is defined as caring for widows and orphans and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Passages, per- passages that recommend generosity are not difficult to find. Exactly right. In fact, I once, I once worked with an organization in which the question was asked to me, it was a good question, uh, why don't seminaries have a class entitled Porology? the study of the theology of the poor. And what he meant was, he wasn't talking about liberation theology, he was saying, I've read through the Bible and there are over 400 passages that deal with the poor in one way or another that could use systematic study for thinking through how you deal with this needy segment of the creation that God obviously is sensitive to because he talks so very much about it. Um, Anyway, after that, giving generous relief for others in need, James 2, 15 to 17, and productive investment to produce economic flourishing to the community. And here you have Psalm 112, uh, 3 to 5 that's mentioned. So you've got a variety of things that a stewardship mindset is supposed to do. And basically what it's saying is resources are to be used in a way that not only do you provide services and provide the ability to have services, but then you provide the basis for continuing to serve and to serve hopefully more and more effectively all the time. Yes, and while there are a lot of places we could take this conversation, Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that jumps to my mind to add to what you've just said is uh, in the contrast between hoarding on the negative side mm-hmm. and investing mm-hmm. on the positive side. One of we talked in the last podcast about the development of the modern economy. Mm-hmm. One of the great blessings of the modern economy is that it makes it very easy to invest in ways that bring flourishing to the community. When you put your money in a bank, it is not sitting there in a silo like it was for the the, the man in the uh, in, in the parable. Uh, when you put your money in a bank, the bank takes that money and invests it in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, obviously, the bank has a responsibility, an ethical responsibility, and I think we could, we might do a better job of calling banks to that ethical responsibility. But the 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 primary function of the system is to enable us to invest money in the community uh, through the through the financial system. Uh, Michael Novak uh, likes to use the example of the the Battle of Lepanto, uh, where Venice, which is this small city state, actually fended off the entire Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and one. One of the reasons they were able to do that was they had a huge banking sector where wealth, uh, people who had wealth could put it in the banks and it would be invested in productive activity. Hmm. And this is what this is what enabled Venice to become uh, able to raise a large navy. Whereas now this is the part that yeah. I find fascinating: uh, when they would capture a flagship in the Ottoman fleet, uh, they would actually find chests of gold mm-hmm. in the boat mm-hmm. because the the wealthy, prominent people in the Ottoman uh, uh, country. Uh, wouldn't leave their money behind because they couldn't trust it to anybody. Huh. Now that's a that's a, a wonderful image <laughs> yeah. of the hoarding behavior uh, that people are strongly tempted to if they don't have a functioning economic system where you can trust that your if you put your money in the bank, a you will get it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it will not be simply taken by by you know the sultan. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but B, you put your money in the bank, you know it's being used, it's, it's going to good use. And there's an assumption there that there's a virtue working through the culture that allows the, all these exchanges at a personal level that involve some level of trust, actually, yes. to take place. Yes, trust is the heart and soul of any well-functioning economy. And it means you have to have a reasonably grounded belief that the people around you will behave themselves even if they will not pay an immediate price. And one for... of the one of the tensions that we've seen more recently, at least with some of the scandals that involve uh, business and business people, have, have been an inability to trust uh, their their ethics and their virtue to function in a way in which the system can work. Absolutely, and I think if this uh, trend away from self if self-control mm -hmm. uh, in the broadest possible sense, uh, that is intrinsic character, mm -hmm. people uh, behaving virtuously because they've been equipped with a character that behaves virtuously simply because it's the right thing to do, not because there's a criminal justice system that will haul you away. Uh, if we continue to lose that moral character, trust levels, which have been dropping precipitously for at least two generations, will continue to drop. Uh, and ultimately, the economic system will be majorly disrupted by that lack of trust. It's already being disrupted by a lack of you trust. Know, it's it's going to get worse if we don't turn that it's, around. It's interesting. I've been doing a, a series of interviews on a variety of topics here lately, and uh, one of them got into this area, and I was making the point that when you create school systems that don't deal with character in a substantive way, you just, you just simply teach your coursework. Um, that, that we're beginning to reap on the other end what we pay for. When we ignore character, you don't develop character. And when you don't develop character, then all the structures that society assumes will operate because people can be trustworthy at a character level break down. And then you force you, 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 in some senses, you force the state to enter in and create laws to protect yourself against yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and for most of human history, you had an extremely high level of social control where a tiny group of elites at the top of society basically controlled how everyone lived. And it's because for most of human history, most cultures simply don't have the kind of self-regulating character that has become normal uh, in uh, the, in cultures that have been influenced by the spread of Christianity. It is no coincidence that the spread of the global economy is following a spread of uh, the gospel in unprecedented ways around the world. And I'm not trying to overdraw that, mm -hmm. but there is a moral character foundation that has to be in place before economies can begin to grow and function the way they, the way they can. And I think you're absolutely right to identify lack of moral formation I would add families, but mm -hmm. schools as well. Mm -hmm. Those are both critical uh, critical areas. Of course, the problem is you got a lot of broken families around who are inhabiting the schools where character is not being taught, and the problem is just perpetuating. Itself. Again, vicious circle. Yeah, exactly. Like we right. said, like we said before, and uh, when character is not ignored, it is dealt with in a way that is superficial and frivolous, mm -hmm. and simply does not get to the deep sources of character. Yeah, and it's, and so there's a very there's a very difficult problem here. You know, it's interesting that that many of the economic theories that we talked about last time really 
really did also talk about the importance of human character in making those economies work. The, the less strictly materialistically oriented they were, the more they looked for the balance between a good economic approach and a, and a character that can drive it, that will make it work and function well. You pull the character part out of that equation and you, and you risk having a mess on your hands. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as we said last time, the discipline of economics began as a sub a subfield of moral philosophy mm-hmm. uh, and grew rapidly uh, and gained uh, gained independence. And while in some ways I'm, as a social scientist, glad to see social science maturing, uh, it became detached from theology and then even from, from moral philosophy in, in ways that ha- really need to be repaired. Interesting. Well, that's a, it's kind of a grim place to end, isn't it? But uh, well, but, let's end with hope. There are people. There are people in the field of economics talking about this uh, now. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, there's actually just as there are local churches that are doing amazing things now in changing the way we deal with poverty. Uh, there are economists, most of them Christian, although not all, who are uh, seriously examining the need for moral presuppositions in the economic discipline. I'm very encouraged by that. Yeah. Without it, I think we're, we're really uh, climbing uphill. So, uh, well, I appreciate your your being in studio with us this time. Sometimes we have you by Skype, and sometimes we have you here, Greg, and you become a regular on the on the table to discuss these issues with us. And we've got a couple of more pieces of this work to go, and we'll have completed it, and then we'll have to think of a new project to do together. Uh, but uh, it's been a pleasure to have you with us again on the table, and we thank you for joining us on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture and hope you'll be with us again next time. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.